Uh, I want to just take a moment. I want to say a word of prayer. And, and specifically, I want to focus on uh, the Charleston uh, Emmanuel AME Church and the things that happened there this week. And I just want to pray for them. I want to pray for the survivors. Uh, I want to pray for families. And I just want to pray for that church in general and things that are happening across our country these days. Let's uh, just, let's just uh, bow your heads and pray with me, if you would. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are very mindful this morning of the suffering of another church, uh, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ at uh, Emmanuel AME Church, mindful of the fact that they lost people that they loved, uh, they lost a leader, they lost uh, family members, friends that were dear to them, and we suffer when they suffer. They are part of the body of Christ, and, and as such, we are all part of the body of Christ, and we suffer when they suffer. We feel their pain this morning. Lord, we pray this morning that you would comfort them, that you would uphold them, that you would strengthen them. Lord, we pray that your mercy would be made very known to them, and yet we pray at the same time that in the midst of their suffering, that your glory would be made very clear to them as well. Lord, we thank you for the time this morning to be able to worship you. We pray that as we encounter your word today that you would speak to us very, very clearly this morning. Change us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, one, one more thing before we look into the scriptures. I want to thank the people who set up this place and tear it down every Sunday. I mean, they've got a huge job. They're here like really early in the morning and they stay till long after you guys are gone. Fortunately, when we move to our new facility, they won't have, they'll, they'll be out of a job and I know they'll be thrilled to be out of a job. But if you would show them your appreciation, just, just thank them for what they do. Uh, we find ourselves in a cultural moment in which the issue of identity is at the forefront of American minds. Earlier this month, most of you know, Bruce Jenner used Vanity Fair magazine to unveil his new identity as a woman. And then this past week, Rachel Dolezal, president of the Spokane, uh, Spokane NCAA chapter, admitted that while she was born white, she had posed as a black woman because she most identifies, uh, she said, as black. Most of us don't wrestle with the issue of our identity in such extreme ways, but all of us do confront the issue of identity in our lives, right? I mean, we're all asking the question, who am I? What's my identity? What's my purpose in life? Um, existential questions that all of us wrestle with sooner or later in life. Many, most of us, we wrestle with these things throughout life. And on the one hand, science tells us that your individuality doesn't really matter. Uh, it's going to be gone pretty soon. You're just a wave upon the sand, a dew drop in the ocean. But something in us knows better than that. It's why people of every generation have wrestled with the question of identity. Every single one of us needs an identity, a sense of self, a sense that there's a distinct value about us and a unique purpose that we have uh, in this world. But there's something that makes us distinct as individuals, different, uh, unique. And the question that I really want to ask today is how do, you, uh, how do you discover that? How does one find his or her identity? 
Okay? And again, that's the question that we're going to be posing this morning as we continue in our series on the first half of the book of Mark, which covers the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. If you have a Bible with you this morning, whether it's digital or a, you know, a, a hard copy of the Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. But I will tell you that I challenge those people who are regular attenders here, and I have been doing this since the beginning of the year, uh, bring a Bible to church. You should do that. Bring a Bible to church because this is where God speaks to us. You're not going to hear from God uh, out on the street just walking around. You're not going to hear from God uh, if you don't have a Bible. That's where he speaks to us. It's his primary voice to speak to us is through his word. So make sure that you bring one with us. should say, too, if you're just joining us uh, by our podcast or our app, we welcome. We're so glad you're with us, but you just missed a great time of worship led by our new worship leader, Jake Fuller, who did a great job. And I got to tell you guys, I'm really thrilled to have uh, Jake on our staff. It's just been a great addition to our staff team and excited about Jake's plans and where he wants to take us uh, in the future in leading worship here at City Church. The purpose of this series on the first half of the Gospel of Mark is to get to know the historical Jesus. And last week we saw We talked about the fact that Jesus is offensive, specifically to two very diverse groups uh, of people. We said he's offensive to religious conservatives, and we said he's also uh, offensive to irreligious liberals. And in fact, we saw last week that in this unprecedented act of unity, those two groups, uh, conservative religious people and irreligious liberal people, they joined together. Uh, as a result of Jesus' ministry and the things he's saying and doing, they joined together to plot against Jesus. Let's look at verse 6 again. Uh, then the Pharisees, verse 6, chapter uh, 3, then the Pharisees, those are the conservative uh, religious people, went out and began to plot with the Herodians. So those, as you remember from last week, were the liberal, uh, irreligious people. They plotted with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, you know, here's the thing. As they're plotting to kill Jesus... Uh, Jesus' popularity is surging to heights that have been unseen before. And because it wasn't yet time for Jesus to die, the text says in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Some commentators speculate, by the way, that the open beach, you know, like being at the lake, being in an open area, would be much safer for Jesus than the dark, narrow alleys of the city when these people were plotting to kill him, okay? When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Understand now that these places, uh, these are places that are over like 100 miles away, some of them, okay? An enormous distance to travel for people without modern forms of transportation, Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirit saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Now, one other thing I want to point out about these verses before we move on. Uh, The description here of the places that people came from to see Jesus... Uh, Judea and Jerusalem were Jewish provinces. Tyre and Sidon uh, Sidon were Gentile provinces. Idumea and the Galilean area were multi-ethnic and multi-racial. And all of this was in a time, you have to understand, of great national and ethnic tension in Israel. 
But Jesus' popularity cuts across all of that. People are coming to him from everywhere. And the crowds are dangerously dense and dangerously huge. It says that they, the text says that they pushed forward to, uh, to touch him. Actually, that means like they violently trampled one another to get to Jesus. You've probably heard of like rock concerts where the crowds uh, trampled over people who actually died in the stampede. In fact, I, you know, you guys, some of you guys may remember this. Uh, back in 1979, The Who, you guys remember The Who? Uh, I, not, not that I remember, remember The Who personally, I'm not that old, but, uh, but you know, those of you who do remember The Who, they performed at Riverfront Stadium in 1979 in Cincinnati. Eleven people uh, were trampled to death when the crowd outside uh, surged toward the opening doors. Okay? There's a very real sense in this text in which Jesus is becoming like a rock star among the people even though the ruling classes are plotting to kill him. Okay? So among the common people, he's, he's becoming a rock star. The ruling classes are so hateful, so angry of Jesus, that they're plotting to kill him. And it's going to be very interesting. And if, if, by the way, if you're reading along on your own like uh, through the week, watch how the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the crowds begin to thin out. Okay? Watch that. Where a rock star might do all he could to court and nurture the kind of fame that Jesus is experiencing, Jesus' response is is very different. And it's what happens next that I really want to focus on today and that I think addresses this issue of identity that uh, all of us confront at one point or another in our lives. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 that he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, now what I really want to focus on today in this particular passage is how Jesus names and renames people in this text and the significance all of this naming and renaming has. What, what is that about? You know, Jesus, you know, so here's, you know, here's this guy uh, that Jesus takes, and he says, he says I, I'm going to rename you. He, he takes, uh, he takes uh, James and John, and he gives them the names Sons of Thunder, right? And uh, uh, he, he takes Simon, and he gives him the name Peter. What is the significance of all of this naming and, and renaming, okay? Let's start with this. I'd like for you to just write this down somewhere or put it in your notes. Uh, because Jesus is God... Okay, because Jesus is God, he has unique naming power. Because Jesus is God, he has unique naming power. Now, let me, let me just, I know that doesn't, that's a little cryptic. Let me explain what I mean by this, that Jesus has unique naming power. The English translation that we're reading from here uh, masks this a little bit, but the theme of this paragraph is naming. In verse 14, the text says, that he appointed uh, 12. But that word appointed is actually the word name. Okay, He named them 12. And then the name he gave them as a group was the apostles. 
And then after that, he goes down into people's individual lives. He goes to Simon, and the text says he renamed him Peter. He goes to James and John, and he renames them sons of, of thunder. Now, this is important because these, it's not like Jesus is giving them nicknames, okay? It's not like he's giving them nicknames. He, he's, he's actually renaming these people. You could say it this way, that he's giving them a new identity, Understand that in ancient times, names were extremely important. I mean, they're, they're, they're still very important, right? I mean, you know, your name matters. But in ancient times, they were extremely important. And naming a person was an act of great importance and power, okay? Naming someone meant, when you named someone, it meant that you had the authority and the power over them to do that. And, and, and the name that you gave a person was supposed to convey the essence of who that person was. And so, like, when parents named their kids, they were doing so hoping that the name would shape the child's character. Because there is some shaping power in naming a child, isn't there? Okay? For instance, let me give you an example of that. Most parents today wouldn't name their precious little child Hitler, right? They, they wouldn't do that. Out of fear that the name might be so powerful that it might begin to shape the way the child thought of himself and maybe even shape his destiny, right? You wouldn't do that. You, are you with me on that? Do you agree? Can we come to some agreement on that, that most people wouldn't name their child Hitler? Okay, good. Here's the thing, though. Even though naming has power, naming, at least for human beings, only has limited power. For instance, let me give you another for instance. Like, you can't name your child LeBron or Kobe and reasonably expect that he will become the world's greatest basketball player, right? right? So it's got, it's got limited power. You can name a child, and maybe it'll shape their future some, but, but you can't reasonably expect Kobe, LeBron, you name them that, that they're just because of their name, that they're going to become the world's greatest basketball players. You with me? Nod your head. Okay, good, good. All right. In fact, it would be horrible, wouldn't it, if you named your child one of those things, LeBron or Kobe, and then he decided he wanted to be a cheerleader for the team instead. That would be really painfully ironic, wouldn't it? Okay? It would be terrible. Okay? Humans have power when they name someone, but only limited power. Here's the thing, though. With God, it's very, very different. When God created the universe in Genesis chapter 1, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but he named it into existence. He named it into existence. Okay? He didn't snap things into, his, into existence with his fingers. He didn't think things into existence. He named things into existence. That's how he creates. He didn't say, he didn't say, well, like, uh, he didn't say let there be light, and then he went off you know, to make light. He didn't do that. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So with God, you see, unlike human beings, the naming creates the reality. Okay, so think of it in this way. Think of it like this. Your family gets a new dog, okay? Uh, the dog comes home. You guys, you guys want to name it. It's all white and fluffy. And so you may name it, I don't know, what? Fluffy or Powder Puff. Hopefully you're not a guy if you're choosing any of those names because your man card would be immediately revoked. But you know, uh, all you're doing when you name that little white fluffy dog all you're doing, if you name it Fluffy or Powder Puff or something like that, you're just describing the nature of the dog. You see what I'm saying? Say amen. Okay, you're just describing the nature of the dog. But that's not how God names. When God names, he doesn't just describe the nature of the thing. He determines 
the nature of the thing he names. Okay? So if God said, let there be fluffy, there would be a white little fluffy dog. Okay? You understand? That's how that works. Okay? Now, because Jesus is God, this is a claim that we have seen him make. We saw him make it last week. We've seen him make it in previous weeks. Because Jesus is God, by naming and renaming these people, he's not only demonstrating that he has authority and power over their lives, but he's also determining the identity of these people whom he names. And again, the English translation masks this just a little bit. In verse 14, it says that he, it says he designated them apostles, which, which, which means he named them apostles, but it also says he appointed 12. A better translation for that is, would be that he, he created, uh, the word would be better translated created. He created 12. It's a Greek word that is used for an artist creating a work of art. He created 12. In other words, he didn't look at these 12 guys and say, those guys have what it takes to be an apostle, and so he named them apostles. That's not how it worked. No, he gave them what it took to be apostles. See? He named them something and gave them what it took to be that. He didn't just recognize what they had. He didn't, excuse me, he didn't just recognize that they had what it took. He created and gave them what it took to be apostles. And so Jesus' naming has, it has unique power to determine the nature of the thing he names. Okay? When Jesus changed uh, Simon's name to Peter, he was saying, whatever the identity that you've had in the past, I'm going to give you a new identity. And I'm going to give you what it takes to be Peter. Okay? When he took the other two, and he, he said, I'm going to call you guys sons of thunder. He was taking whatever identity they had in the past. He said, I'm, 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 going, to, I'm, going, to, I'm going to give you a new identity, and I'm going to give you what it takes to be sons of thunder. He wasn't just describing them. He was saying, I'm going to give you what it takes to be sons of thunder. Okay? When Jesus names you, he brings it about in you. Okay, now that, you got that point. Now, now, now that leads to the second thing that I want you to, to notice from this passage this morning. And here it is. We only discover our true identity in relationship with Jesus. Okay, We only discover our true identity, our true sense of self, our true sense of uniqueness, distinctness. What is it about me that, that is... Uh, that's unique to the world? What have I been put here on the planet for? We only discover our true identity in relationship with Jesus. Did you notice in this passage that the naming only comes when? Look at verse 13 again. It says that it only came, Jesus, did, Jesus didn't rename these guys until after Jesus called them and they went to him. Then he creates the 12 and renames at least some of them, giving them a new name and a new identity both as a group and as uh, individuals. Now, here's the thing. That is in stark contrast to the manner in which fallen human nature instinctively goes about forging an identity. Okay? In our existential quest to distinguish ourselves in some way, to discover a sense of self and significance, to find ourselves, as we would uh, call it today, uh, it is instinctive in us to think that we can forge an identity for ourselves independent 
of a relationship with Christ. This has always, since the beginning of time, been the problem that man has with God. We want to find life away from God. We want to do things our way. And specifically, as it relates to identity, we don't want him to have naming rights over us. See, this is, it's, it's like, like what we're in is, a, it's like a battle for naming rights. I don't know if you've noticed, the center is no longer the center, okay, uh, Old National has naming rights over this place. Okay, so now I don't know if you noticed when you came in all over the place. It says you know Old National Events Plaza. Okay, we're in a battle for naming rights over ourselves. We don't want God to have naming rights. We don't want Him to have the power and the authority to do that. I want to be able to define myself. Okay, who has naming rights over human life? That's the question that is at stake. It's the question, by the way, that's at stake in our culture. Is it us or, or God? Who has the right to determine our identity? For instance, does God decide Bruce Jenner's, uh, Bruce Jenner's identity, or does Bruce Jenner decide that? Okay. Does God decide Rachel Dolezal's identity, or does Rachel Dolezal determine her own identity? It's a battle for naming rights. Who has the right to name? Who has the right to identify, to, uh, to give identity? Do I do that? Does God have the right to do that? Who decides your identity? Is it you or Jesus? You or Jesus? And so when someone asks you the question, I, you know, I've been in a lot of interviews. I've been, I've been interviewed a lot in my life, and I've interviewed a lot of people, you know, job interviews like that in, in my life too. And, and it's always interesting to me. When you ask the question, who are you? You know, describe yourself to me. It's always interesting to see how much people struggle with that question, how to define themselves, Okay. Maybe you're in a job interview uh, or something, and the interview says to you, describe yourself to me. You will probably identify yourself by any number of, like, temporal things. For instance, you might define yourself by your occupation. I'm an accountant. I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm a a lawyer. Uh, I'm a nurse. Whatever. See, that's a big one in American culture, uh, to define yourself by what you do. In some cultures... You would define, you would identify yourself by your family. Uh, but here in America, it's usually by your occupation. Sometimes people will uh, identify themselves by their team affiliation. Uh, I'm a Cardinals fan, or I'm a Cubs fan, which is another way of saying I'm a perpetually disappointed person. But that, you know. Uh, or maybe you describe yourself, you identify yourself by the kind of products you use. I'm a Mac person. Uh, I'm a PC person. I'm a, I'm a Chevy driver. I'm a, I'm a Ford driver. Some of, us, some of us identify ourselves by our troubles. Like I'm a cancer survivor. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm a sexual abuse victim. I'm a parent of a special needs child. Here's the problem. Okay? Here's the problem when you try to forge an identity for yourself outside of a relationship with Jesus, the problem is that you are always left with a very fragile sense of self. A very fragile ego. Always needing people to affirm that thing in you that you identify yourself by. Always needing the temporal thing that you identify yourself uh, to be there for you. Okay. Always needing that. Here's another way to say this. Uh, whatever names you, owns you. Whatever or whoever names you, owns you. For instance, take the case of people who identify themselves by their trouble. Ever known a cancer survivor uh, who lives in paralyzing fear every day 
that the cancer will return. Whatever names you, like it kind of owns you. Or sexual abuse victims who repeat the trauma over and over and over again in their lives in unhealthy sexual relationships, right? The identity that you choose for yourself outside of a relationship with Jesus, if you forge your own identity, the problem is it can shackle you. It can keep you in that identity for the rest of your life. On the other hand, the identity that you choose for yourself, it might not shackle you, but it can obliterate you. There's this great parable uh, in another one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus is telling this parable, and you got two guys in this parable. Some of you would be familiar with this. We, we did it. We talked about it one time. Uh, it goes like this. You got, you got a guy by the name of Lazarus, and then you got this rich man. Okay? And they live and they die, and then Lazarus, the poor man, when he dies, he goes to be with Jesus in death, and the rich man goes into hell. I'm kind of condensing the story. You're probably familiar with enough to, to know that. Commentators have always noted about that particular story that Jesus tells that one of the characters has a name, has a proper name, Lazarus, while the other guy doesn't. He's just known as the rich man. And often, you know, people wonder, why is it that there's one guy with a name and one guy that doesn't have a name? And the reason is this. Jesus is making a profound point about identity by telling the story in that way. If you get your identity from something temporal, like, for instance, your wealth. If you say, well, like, I'm somebody. I have distinct value and unique purpose because I've made money and I have money. The problem is, if you lose it, you have no identity left. Like, you have no you left. There's no you because you're a rich man or you're nothing. And, of course, in, in eternity, earthly currency, which is temporal in nature, it, it has no value, does it? But it doesn't just have to be money. Uh, have you ever noticed how sad it is with some professional athletes uh, when they try to retire? They can't stay retired. They keep coming back, right? They keep coming back. They keep coming back. Why? Well, it's because they were an athlete or they're no one. They don't know how to live not being an athlete. They don't have an identity other than that. So it, this is why especially men, uh, when they retire, uh, many of them struggle. Some of them even die quickly after retiring. Because they've built their own, uh, they built their identity on their own, and they built it around their occupation. And suddenly, in, in retirement, they realize they don't have an identity anymore. Uh, you know, like I don't know who I am now. I've always been this, whatever this was, whatever my occupation uh, was. See, if you, if you build your identity around something temporal, something other than Christ, if you lose it, you're no one. Like if you lose it, it you're obliterated. You, you, don't, you have no you left. Okay? Whatever names you owns you. It can either shackle you or it can obliterate you. And this very human instinct to forge an identity for oneself outside of a relationship with Jesus always leaves a person without a stable identity. There's no sense of self that can last 
through any circumstances, through any seasons of life, through every part of life, through the good times and through the bad, through employment and through unemployment, through success and failure and health and sickness and life and death. See, that's what an identity ought to be, a stable core, a stable sense of self, that it's there. No matter what the circumstances, it's there. And Jesus is saying through all of this naming and renaming, he wants us to understand I can give you an identity. I can give you a name. I can give you a unique sense of self and purpose in this world that is industrial strength, that it can handle wealth and poverty. It can handle love and betrayal. It can handle anything. The identity that I will give you will be an enduring identity because I'm enduring. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I am with you always, right? Now, here's here's the takeaway from all of that. Here's what I want you to get. You will never find your true identity outside of Jesus. If you're on a pursuit this morning to find yourself, you've got to understand, you will never find yourself outside of Jesus. You never find your true identity. Whatever you choose will either shackle you or it will obliterate you. One of the two, maybe both. But if you allow Jesus to define you, if you allow Jesus to rename you, Whatever identity that you've chosen in your life so far. I'm the funny guy. I'm the beautiful girl. I'm the popular person. I'm the rich guy. I'm the cool whatever. Uh, I'm an accountant. Well, who would identify themselves by that? I'm just kidding you. All the accountants in the room, I'm sorry. Kevin Bittner, an elder in our church. I really apologize for that, Kevin. I really apologize to Kevin, the elder. Uh, Whatever you, you know, however you identify yourself... You know, Jesus wants to rename you. He wants to give you a new identity that will neither shackle you nor will it obliterate you. To the contrary, it will liberate you from the temporal, fragile identity that you have forged for yourself. And it will liberate you to become everything that he designed you, created you, named you to be and to do everything that he has assigned you to do in your life. Now, here's the thing. Naturally, the question that you have right now is, okay, Jeff, I buy it. How do I discover that identity? What does that look like? What does it mean to find an identity in Jesus? Okay. How do I do that? And the answer to that question, the question of a lifetime, the question that your future and your legacy and your destiny relies upon, The answer to that question is that you'll have to come back next week to find out. This is a two-part sermon, and I have to close today, so we'll do part two next week, all right? So you got to come back, okay? I want to close with this, okay? First of all, we've said that because Jesus is God, he has unique naming power. He has the unique power to name you, to create an identity for you, and uh, to give you all that it takes to fulfill that identity. He has that power. And then we've also said that, that outside of Jesus, you're never going to find yourself. You're never going to find who you are outside of Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about what does that look like? How do I, how do, I do that? How do I, how do I find my identity? We'll talk about that. I, just let me close with this today. Think about something. Millions of people know these names in this text. These 12 names of these, these, these were poor fishermen. These were no-name guys. Like, right? I mean, they, they weren't anything special. But millions of people throughout history have known 
the names of these poor fishermen and will until the world's end. While at the same time, all kinds of powerful and wealthy and talented and privileged people have died and long since been forgotten. But these names, these 12 names, will never perish. Jesus says, I can give you a name like that. That will never perish. How is that possible? That he could give you a name that will never perish. It's possible because Jesus himself was shackled, nailed to a Roman cross. And Jesus himself was obliterated by that very cross. As the plan that the Pharisees and the Herodians hatched became reality. Because he perished, we never have to. In his death, Jesus secured life for us and the opportunity to become someone greater than we were and greater than we can ever imagine. It begins with believing in him. And only then can you ever possibly discover who you were created to be. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Once again, we encounter your unique personhood, Lord Jesus, as we go through the Gospel of Mark. And we are struck by your power. We are struck by your authority and we, you know, Lord, we confess to you that we're always in this battle with you over naming rights, over identity. Do you have the right to give it? Do I have the right? And Lord, I, I confess to you personally that I, I'm always in this battle with you. I'm always wanting to name myself. I'm always wanting to identify myself. And everyone here could echo that sentiment. Lord Jesus, there are people here this morning, undoubtedly, that have never uh, heard about what you did for them on a, on a Roman cross. Never heard that there's an answer for all the stuff that they sense inside about themselves that they sure wish that they could change, that sometimes they're embarrassed by, maybe they're ashamed by, maybe they feel guilty by. There's never, they've never heard that there's a reason for that, that, that that is a reality, that their instincts are right, and that the reality is, is that, that they're sinners. The Bible says that. But they've also never heard the great news, Lord Jesus, that you died to take away all that guilt and all that shame. And that you were, after you died, that you, ra you were raised again so that they could be changed, so that we could be changed. And Lord, if there are people in the room this morning that never heard that news, maybe, maybe they have heard the news, but they've just been thinking about it, dwelling on it for a while. Maybe today would be a day, Lord, that they would come to a place where they would say, yes, I believe. Maybe, maybe they've never said that before, and today would be the day that they would say, yes, I believe. I pray that that would happen in this room this morning, Lord. And then, Lord, for those of us who do believe but continue to fight this, this issue of identity, Lord, would you, just this next week, would you impress upon our minds and our hearts the importance of allowing you to identify us? Would you give us a, 
a holy curiosity about what that looks like, how that happens. And, and Lord, would you prepare us for what you would say to us about that next week? Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us, and we thank you for what you want to do in us and through us and with us. And that you do not save us to keep us the same, but that you save us to change us. And Lord, would you change us? And your name is exalted here. Let your name be exalted here in us and through us. And it is in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.